I want to welcome you today to a brand new series of sermons, a brand new collection that we will walk through over the next few weeks together that is designed to challenge you. I want to be upfront with where we're going over these next few weeks. The, the word of God, as we hear it, apply it to our lives, walk this thing out, is going to challenge us. It's going to correct some things in us and through us in the way that we operate, in the way that we move, in the way that we do what we do. Things have to change within us as we hear his word. But not only that, it's going to be a time and moments filled with celebration. Because as we journey through this, I want to celebrate what God has done, what God is doing through those of us who are walking out, who have walked out, who will walk out, what it means to thread the needle. Today, that's the title of this series, this collection of sermons over these next few weeks. We are calling Thread the needle, and it's really built out of one conversation that Jesus has as recorded in the New Testament. One uh, interaction that then leads to him making a statement or two to his disciples that is very, very significant. You say significant? Oh, yes. This one is significant, and I want to tell you why it's significant even before we read it. It's significant because, well, it is repeated in three of the New Testament writings that we call the Gospels, uh, verbatim, word for word. I mean, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record this same interaction with this same declaration out of Jesus on the backside of it. They all record it. They highlight certain things. One will sort of turn a little attention here. One will make mention of this. But, but line for line, interaction for interaction, this, this story is communicated, which brings significance to it. Because those of you that are familiar with the Gospels, you're familiar with the way the, the beginning of the New Testament is, is, is written and, and, and put there for us. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all tell us the story of Jesus from their perspective to their audiences that they're writing to. And there is some overlap, but not much. There's some where one will say a thing and the other one will say a thing. But three of the four Gospels indicate this story. And there are less than 30 interactions in the entirety of Jesus' life ministry. Think about that. His birth, his, his death, his resurrection, all of the teachings, all of the miracles, all of the everything that happened in Jesus' life. There are fewer than 30 that are instances that are mentioned in three of the four Gospels, at least. And this is one of them. I don't know about you, but I think that makes that significant. Come on, if you're watching at church online, don't you believe that makes this significant? It leads me to think that this interaction, that this declaration, that this challenge, this correction, this that we will celebrate is significant to the heart of God as he breathed on those New Testament writers and their writing to write this. That it's significant to those recording down the story of Jesus. They said, if we go tell Jesus' story, we gotta tell this. And so what we're gonna do for the next few weeks is we're gonna circle around the same text on different levels. Because you know, if you uh, approach a text from a different altitude, it changes what you see in it, what you receive from it, 
and even what the Spirit of God may be trying to say to you through it. So we're going to circle around and see what happens here. See what happens in people and in us as we learn to thread the needle. But we're going to start on today with the most shocking reality of this story that never gets talked about. See, some of you have been to church a few times, or maybe you've... Uh, Maybe you are the type that you would say you grew up in church. This is probably a familiar account to you. Today, we're going to approach it from Mark's gospel, but in the future weeks, we will approach it from Matthew and from Luke as well, too. But today, we're going to be in Mark. Mark chapter 10. We're going to read verses 17 to 27, which give us the entirety of this interaction. And so let's hear God's word today and get ready for what he wants to say to us as we learn how to be people who live threading the needle. Come on, if you're ready and you're watching at church online, just somebody in that chat right now, say, I'm ready, I'm ready, I'm ready. Verse 17 of Mark 10 says this, as Jesus was starting out on his way to Jerusalem, a man came running up to him, knelt down and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked. Only God is truly good. But to answer your question, you know the commandments. You must not murder. You must not commit adultery. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely. You must not cheat anyone. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, the man replied. I've obeyed all these commandments since I was young. Looking at the man, Jesus felt genuine love for him. There is still one thing you haven't done, Jesus told him. Go and sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell and he went away sad. For he had many possessions. Jesus looked around it, said to his disciples, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? This amazed them. But Jesus again said, dear children, it's very hard to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich person to be entered into the kingdom of God. The disciples were astounded. Then who in the world can be saved? They asked. Jesus looked at them intently and said, humanly speaking, it is impossible, but not with God. Everything is possible with God. Again, this is a story that some of you may have uh, come to know in its uh, often entitled description as Jesus's interaction with a rich young ruler. The rich man and Jesus, why do we pull out of this first that he was a rich man? Why is that the marker given to him? Because I would like to point out that what he is on one level and what he is communicated to us first in what he is as he approaches Jesus. It's only Jesus that tells us about his wealth. 
What he is on one level is devoted. As we see him, he rushes up to Jesus as Jesus is getting ready to get in a van and go to Jerusalem. Jesus has places to be. But this young man, this young zealous follower of God runs up to Jesus, maybe because he had heard Jesus teach. Maybe because word of, of Jesus and his miracles and his, and his communication and, and the, the wonder that was Jesus had circulated around and he'd heard about it. And he'd been someone who in his devotion had been trying to follow God. He had followed in his own testimony all these commandments since he was young. He was devoted, at least in his own mind and eyes, wasn't he? I mean, if he stood in front of the mirror and looked at himself, he would have thought of himself as, I am someone who is devoted to God. I am someone who, I, I don't commit adultery. <laughs> I, I don't cheat people. I, I honor and remember the Sabbath day. I honor my father and my mother. I do these things. I am devoted to God. But yet there's something in him that knows he ain't there yet. There's something in him, even though he knows, he calls himself to Some of his friends probably know him as the most devoted person to God that they know. But there's something in him that knows that I am, I am missing something. That there's more to this. And so before Jesus can leave, he rushes up to Jesus as he's trying to leave and reaches out to Jesus and calls him good teacher. What must I do to get this eternal life that you speak of, this eternal life that we all dream of and hope for and want so desperately? He asked Jesus, what else do I need to do? Because I think my resume speaks for itself. He thinks he's uh, ready for anything. Until he's not. See, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but have you um, ever assumed that you were ready only to find out that you weren't really ready? Come on, you assumed you were ready to date? You assumed it. I mean, some of your friends have started dating or maybe 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 you uh, maybe you got to a season of your life with your career and, and with everything that you were doing. You're like, I think I am ready today. I am prepared. I am prepared for a serious, committed relationship. And you get out there and start dating and you find out real quick. You like yourself some meat. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You like to eat when you want to eat. You like to do what you want to do when you want to do it. You like to spend your money how you want to spend your money. You don't want nobody telling you when to get up or nobody telling you when you got to go. You don't want none of that in your life. And you thought you was ready to date until you started dating and you realized I ain't, I ain't ready to date. Or maybe you thought you were ready to work for yourself. It sounds like the American dream, doesn't it? Right? Like being an entrepreneur, being able to work for yourself. Because you got tired of working for the man, didn't you? Working 40 hours a week for the man. And so you decided you wanted to work for yourself. And you took that leap of faith and started working for yourself. And you found out you used to work for the man for 40 hours a week. But now you work for yourself 100 hours a week. And you was like, oh, 
<laughs> I wasn't ready for this because I had seen a TikTok where somebody talked about working four hours a week. And I thought that was life working for yourself. You weren't really ready. Summer before last, I, uh, I got this itch to play in a... Uh, to play in a competitive golf tournament, like as an individual, which for me was exciting because I played golf in high school, played golf in college, and uh, not to like brag or pat myself on the back, but I was good. I won a lot of tournaments. I, I, I was a very good golfer. But truth be told, uh, some things happened with my eligibility when I was 19 years old, and I hadn't played in an individual play-your-own-golf-ball golf tournament since I was 19 years old. Well, <laughs> I had played golf since then and played golf very well. I had played in, in, in group golf tournaments that are sometimes referred to as scrambles, where maybe it's like you and a partner or you and three partners. You go out there and you play together, and it's fun, and there's a little pressure with it, but, uh, but it's, it's just mostly fun. This was very different. This was uh, play by the rules of golf, play your own ball, every shot counts, every stroke counts, you lose a ball, like ain't no fudging, none of that kind of stuff. You, you, you play golf, and uh, I'd gotten the inkling to do this because about a month before this tournament uh my family we we were out of town i got to play golf a couple of times the the few days that we were gone and i played amazingly <laughs> on some courses i ain't never seen and i played with some people you know just met up with and they was like "Woo! is, is you professional did you play in you know like all this kind of we're having these conversations and it kind of just it kind of built up my ego a little bit. I'm like, yeah, I still got it, baby. I mean, it's been a minute, but I still got it. So I came, I came back home, and, uh, and this golf tournament was coming up, and I said, I'm about to enter this thing. And so I did. And I didn't enter it very far in advance. In fact, I had about two weeks before the tournament to really, really get ready. And I'm talking about uh, morning before I'd even come into the office, uh, evening until, until the sun would go down. If I had a free evening, I was, I was hitting golf balls. I was putting. I was practicing. I was trying to get ready because I thought I was ready. And when I would play, I would play masterfully. I get out there on the first day of this tournament. And honestly, the first eight holes, I played great. I played so great that um, this particular tournament had a big scoreboard out there because people were able to put their scores in in real time on their phone. And uh, that was the way they encouraged you to do it. And so I got through eight holes, and, and when I was standing on the ninth tee, uh, I could see the scoreboard. And up very near the top, I saw M dot B A I E R. And I was like, won't he do it? <laughs> won't he do it? Look at me. Look at me. And, and, and I, I, I believed in that moment. I told them I was ready. I wasn't ready. Because it was all downhill from there. Not in a good way. <laughs> like it was all downhill. Like, the, like they talk about the wheels came off. Maybe the wheels came off. The axle came off. We lost the roof, the windshield, everything. Because I wasn't ready for the, the pressure that you feel when somebody in your group glances over at the board and go, hey, look at you up near the lead. I wasn't, I wasn't ready. I wasn't ready. It, it all fell apart. By the end of that round, I was nowhere near the top of that leaderboard. I never sniffed the top of that leaderboard again because I wasn't ready. I thought I was. 
they say about pressure, pressure breaks pipes. It also breaks preachers trying to play in golf tournaments. You know what I'm saying? I wasn't, I thought I was, but I wasn't really ready. I think that's how this young man felt that we read about his interaction with Jesus in Mark 10. That he, uh, he thought he was ready for what he was asking. He, he, he thought, I mean, people told him, he said, like he thought he was ready until he knew he wasn't. See, this man thought he was ready. He thought he was devoted. He thought he was giving his all to God, that he would do anything for God until somebody in that chat needs to type until. Until the place he'd made off limits was called on and required. See, the man did all the things that he thought were necessary. I mean, Jesus listed six here. Don't, 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 don't covet. Don't, don't, don't treat people wrongly. Honor your father and mother. Don't commit adultery. Do not steal. Jesus lists these things. Remember the Sabbath. And he says, I've done all these things. He thought, I'm ready. And then Jesus talked about that one area that he had pushed to the side and said, I ain't going to give that to God. That one area that he had set over to the side and said, no, 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 we ain't going to really talk about this to God. Because he was willing to trust God with his Sabbath and he was willing to trust God with his dealings and he was willing to trust God with his marital relationship. He was willing to trust God in all of these things, but he was unwilling to trust God with his money. And when Jesus brought up his money, he found out all this devotion that he thought he had, he had on some level. But he wasn't really ready. See, the problem with approaching this story through the lens of a rich man is uh, nobody under the sound of my voice considers themselves rich. <laughs> so we instantly divorce ourselves and say, I bet this is blessing somebody, but it ain't for me because I ain't rich. Can I tell you something I've learned about all people? Nobody considers themselves rich. Rich people don't consider themselves rich. I, I, I read this, this story uh, this week about, a, about an NBA player, right, who has made uh, between his contracts and his endorsement deals, hundreds of millions of dollars, okay? And, and, and in this, this story I was reading this week, he, 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 he's talking about this, this thing that he's getting into now, this, just, this hobby. He's gotten interested in art. And he makes the statement in this story that, you know, now that I have a little bit of financial stability, Bro, you made $300 million in, your, in the last 14 years. What are you talking about financial stability? Baby, you're wealthy, okay? You Scrooge McDuck if you want to be. Have yourself a, a, a building with a pool with gold coins in it that you swim around. Like, what are you talking about financial stability? Financial stability is I ain't got to worry about what I'm putting in the basket when I go to Kroger. That's financial stability, okay? Because nobody thinks they're rich. Even people who are rich, even people who have a little bit. So it is a poor approach to approach 
this story thinking, oh, well, this was Jesus' interaction with a rich man, and I'm not rich. No, this was Jesus' interaction with someone who believed they were to be devoted. But they were very attached to some stuff they had. And everybody's got stuff, right? Everybody has things that matter to them. We have the things that, uh, that really, really count on our scorecard. And what's woven into the reality of all stuff is money. Whatever the stuff is for you, the stuff for you may be uh, being able to drive a certain car. The stuff for you may be being able to buy your own house. The stuff for you may be being able to, 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 to grab that new bag every quarter as, as, a, as proof that you are getting somewhere. Stuff to you may be being able to go on a vacation for an entire week where you don't have to work and you just spend dollars on dollars on dollars buying everything and you ain't got to work and you saved up to do this thing. It's stuff. And all of our stuff has money attached to it, money woven into it. And money is a significant thing. How we see it, how we use it, how we steward it or don't steward it, whether we do what God says do with it or don't do what God says do with it. Money is a significant thing. It is not something to be worshipped. It is not something to be treasured, which is the problem with this young man. It's a tool that God gives us to be able to use. Now, before I take another step further, and I'm about to take some steps, so you better get ready, okay? I need to clarify for everyone, because in the church space, for so long, money has been misrepresented, misunderstood, misdefined and categorized. Would you write something down in your notes today? That money is not a salvation issue. It is a devotion issue. What you do with your money is not about your salvation. It is not a heaven or hell situation. Some people have told you that before. That's just not true. It's not a heaven or hell. It is a devotion issue. But don't get it twisted and say, oh, I can do whatever I want with my money and still make it into heaven. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But money was significant to Jesus. Not that he cared a lot about it, but he knew we would care a lot about it. So he talked about it a lot. Jesus talked about money and possessions more than he talked about heaven and hell combined. Jesus told 30-odd parables, these stories that were recorded, uh, that taught principles about the kingdom of God. The, the largest subject matter that he approached in all of these parables were money and possessions. The greatest sermon ever preached was preached by Jesus. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. It's found in the book of Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. And so much of the teaching there has to do with our money and our possessions, how we use it, how we are to use it, how we glorify God with it, and what we're not supposed to do with it. In fact, Jesus makes this statement. It's recorded in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. He says that no one can serve two masters. He's talking about money. And he calls money one of our masters. No one can serve two masters masters because what will happen is he'll love one and he'll hate the other he'll be devoted to one and he'll despise the other and then he says you cannot serve god and some translations say money but the best translations say you cannot serve god and mammon 
Mammon is not money. But mammon is the spirit that's on money, not submitted to God. Mammon is a problem because mammon wants to squeeze in and takes God's place and tell you that it can do for you what only God can do for you. The problem is not money. The problem is the spirit that can be on money, unsubmitted to God, mammon. Because mammon comes along and tells you if you get more money, you'll get what you want. And people say that all the time, don't they? I probably said it in my life a few times, if not a lot of times, that if I had enough money, then I'd feel secure. You know, if I could just get this raised, then I would be at peace. You know, I would really be filled with joy if somebody would buy me that thing I've had my eye on for 18 months now. I would, feel, I would feel accomplished. I would feel strong. I would feel like I matter. I would feel protected. If I could just save this amount, then I would feel. It's interesting, though. All those things we tell ourselves, if we get some more money, we would have, are actually truly and wholly and completely to be found in God. We tell ourselves money will bring us peace, but peace is not a place. Peace is not an amount. Peace is a person, and his name is Jesus. My peace I leave with you, Jesus said. We think that, that, that money will somehow protect us. If I make enough money, then I can buy enough insurance. I, I, can, I can be able to go to the doctor. I can be able to put an alarm on my house. I can put a fence around these. I can protect myself. I can move to a neighborhood where I'll be there. I can do these things. I read somewhere, some trust in horses and some trust in chariots, but we trust in the name of the Lord, our God. That's mammon talking to you. Mammon comes around and tries to speak and promise things that only God can truly and completely deliver. See, the issue with the man that Jesus had this interaction with was not what the man had which is why it is so disingenuous and so uh, presumptive to simply call this man a rich man and act like his richness and his wealth that he had was his entire problem. The fact that he had a lot of money was not the problem. That was never Jesus's issue. The issue was that he trusted what he had more than he trusted Jesus. He literally put his faith in his possessions more than he did in the one he came to, to talk to about eternal life. The issue wasn't what the man had. The issue was that he wanted what he had more than he wanted Jesus. Jesus gave him one thing to do. He said, good job, man. And he loved him. There was something in this man that, 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 that sparked the spirit of our Savior. And Jesus was like, he needs to, he needs to be with me. He needs to be on my team. Jesus gave him one thing to do. Man said, no. Because I want my stuff. I got back at the house. More than I really want what I asked you about. The issue was not what the man had. The issue was that he valued what he had more than he valued Jesus. Can I tell you, friend, that can be our issue too. It's not that we don't love God. It's not that we don't value God. It's that we just trust the stuff we got at the house more than we trust him.
It's just that we want more money in our bank account more than we want his purposes, his plans for our lives. I want to be painstakingly clear again, so I'd love for you to write this down in your notes. There's no issue with you having money. There's an issue with money having you. There's no issue with you having money. We've demonized money. Money is not to be demonized. Mammon is to be broken and stripped off our lives. There's not anything wrong with money. Money is a tool. The problem is many of us don't just have money. Money has us. And I know what some of you are thinking. You're like, I, money can't have me. I ain't got none. <laughs> you ain't got to have a lot of money for money to have you. Because I've learned some of the people who trust in money the most actually have the least. Some of the people that put their assurances in money have the least amount of money they're protecting. The least amount of stuff that they're guarding, fighting for. God, you cannot touch this. God, you cannot have this. God, I will not because I got this that matters to me. See, the thing about Jesus is he wanted for him, this young man, what money could never give to him. He loved him. Man, when he saw his zeal, when he saw that he responded with confidence, I've, I've kept the commandments. I'm here talking to you, Jesus, because I know there's something more. There was something in that that moved the heart of our Savior. Jesus wanted for this young man what money could never give to him. So he told him what to do. Go sell everything you have. Now we hear this and we say, that is a radical ask, Jesus. And it is. It's radical, but it's also reasonable. It's reasonable because in that day, there were many rabbis who would ask the very same thing of their followers. There were many teachers who would say, if you really want to follow me, go sell everything you have and then you can come. This was a radical request, a radical instruction, but a reasonable one. Reasonable because also we turn the page and we begin to read about the, the culture of the early church, the first church after Jesus ascends to heaven. And what we find very common among many people is that they were literally selling what they had, bringing the proceeds to the church so that every person's needs could be met, so that everybody ate, so that everybody went to school, so that everybody's MLG and W bill was back. Like, so it all happened. This is what was common. This is what would happen. It was radical, but it was reasonable. Jesus wanted for him what money couldn't do for him. So he said, go sell everything you have. Yes, it's radical, it's reasonable. Yet it's a personal and individualized command. Please understand this. You can just trust me and trust my reading of the Bible on this. Jesus does not instruct every wealthy person he comes across to go and sell everything they have. And Jesus interacted with a lot of wealthy people. Jesus had wealthy people that were following him. In fact, some of them were women married to really wealthy people. 
And they were the ones that paid the tab for Jesus and his disciples when they would go from town to town and place to place. Don't believe me? Read Luke 8. This was not some always instruction. Every wealthy person I find, you know what I'm about to tell you, is Jesus' time. Go sell everything you have, give it to the poor. No, no, no. This was a personal and individualized command. Why? Because Jesus knew his stuff had him. Jesus knew that he was so interwoven, so attached, so committed to his stuff. that Jesus says, we need to break mammon off of you. Go sell everything you have. Come follow me. It's a radical and a reasonable command Jesus gives. It's a personal and individualized command. But please hear me on this. There is a universal and an inescapable implication into Jesus' command. Now, I can see you there. I know you're watching this in the kitchen, sitting there in the living room or listening to this podcast later on. I, I can see you, though. I can see you as I've been praying for you, getting ready to share God's word with you. Because... Um, some of you, as I've been preaching, you, 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 I appreciate you not leaving. I appreciate you not ending the podcast early. I appreciate you staying connected to church online. But what you've tried to do is write yourself out of this application about a half dozen times because you know what's in your bank account or you know the stuff you got in the house. And you're like, I don't think he's really talking to me. But there's truth here for us all. This story is significant. Not because Jesus has some vendetta with wealthy people. Matthew, Mark, Luke, all take it upon themselves to record this same interaction. All the hundreds, the thousands of interactions. John says at the end of his gospel, if everything that Jesus said and did was written down, I don't suppose all the books in the world could contain it. But yet this is recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Because there is a universal and inescapable implication made through this. And it's this right here. Would you please lean in? Anything that matters so much to you that you won't do what Jesus asks you matters too much. Anything that matters so much to you that you won't do what Jesus asks you, it matters too much to you. See, the issue here is this man's love and devotion to his stuff was greater than his devotion to Jesus. So much so that it caused him to reject Jesus' calling, reject Jesus' invitation to come be with him. Did you see that? I think sometimes I've had people talk to me. I've even been flabbergasted by, by Jesus' disciples and their, their calling, how Jesus is walking along a, a, a seashore and he sees some fishermen and he calls out to these people he barely even knows if he even knows them. And he says, Simon, drop them nets and come follow me. James and John and Andrew and Matthew and Bartholomew and the Judases, they, they leave what they're doing and they go follow Jesus. It's wild. And some of us think that everybody Jesus asked to follow him did. No, they didn't. This guy didn't. Jesus loved him, Mark says. So he said, listen, I know you've got a strong devotion to your stuff. Um, 
Would you uh, go sell everything you have? Give the money to the poor. Come follow me. Jesus literally invited him to be in the group. Like, like, like to be in, in the crowd when Jesus would go and heal the next person. When Jesus travel with Jesus from town to town, be with him. Shoot, for all we know, Jesus may have been inviting him to be the 13th disciple. He is Jesus. I don't know what's so special about the number 12. I know you got all your little, you read a numerology book on Jewish numerology and put it on the Bible. But ain't nothing, ain't nothing necessarily significant about 12 other than maybe Jesus wanted to end with 12. And maybe Jesus didn't want them to cast lots because Judas was going to kill himself after he denies Jesus. So maybe Jesus was trying to circumvent this from the front and put this dude in the queue and be like, as soon as Judas does what he do, bring, bring, bring this dude up in here. This young man said, I don't want that. His stuff mattered so much that he said, nah. Because even though he thought he was devoted enough, he wasn't devoted everywhere. So he wasn't really ready. If you don't trust Jesus everywhere, you end up following Jesus nowhere. This man turned around sad and went back to his stuff. He got nowhere with Jesus because he did not trust Jesus everywhere. See, the truth is, is that a lot of us People trying to be devoted to God. People who are saved, we've received the free gift of salvation, are trying to organize, trying to steward our lives like Jesus would tell us. Some of us, if we're honest, we try to manage our devotion and be like, okay, I'm going to be very devoted in these things and not very devoted in these things. I'm going to submit this to God, but not that. Don't touch, do not talk to me about Can I tell you, friend, at some point you're there will be called on. You're there will be required. I know for years you've served. I know for years you've prayed. I know for years you've shown up and you've smiled. I know for years you have. But if you have a there, at some point your there is going to be called on. Maybe for the next season. Maybe for the next thing that God wants to do through your life. Maybe, 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 for, maybe for his purposes for you. Maybe for what God wants to blow your mind by doing in you and through you and for you. But he's going to ask you about that over there. And if you don't trust Jesus everywhere, what you're going to find is you end up following Jesus nowhere. And you get to the end of your devotion. And you realize, oh, the next step costs too much. The next step goes too far. The next step, step makes me feel some kind of way that I don't really want to feel. And so you turn away sad and go home. Just like this young man. See, the truth is a lot of people want God on their terms. 
There's a scholastic term that uh, defines the way many people approach Jesus, his teachings, approach the Christian faith following Jesus in this day. And it's being called Christian Buddhism. And it is not an expression of Christianity at all, but yet is a term used to define what people are doing. People are picking and choosing the parts of Jesus that they like and rejecting the parts that they don't want to deal with. So people may be real about loving their neighbor because that sounds real inclusive. You better love your neighbor because Jesus said, love your neighbor. They will love your neighbor till you are blue in the face. But when Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me, they say, that's got splinters, though. They will tell you that God is love, their definition of love. They will fail to mention that God is holy. They will tell you uh, that you should forgive. But uh, when Jesus says you should give, they ain't got no time or place for that. Because it's about what they want. For some of you, this is you. It's about your truth. It's about your ideas. It's about your desires. And it's about your methods and your morals and your reasoning. Not what God says because God said it. You want God on your terms. God wants you to trust him. That's what God wants. Some translations put Jesus' description of this rich person in a slightly different way that I think is much clearer for our understanding of what's really going on with him as Jesus saw it. Jesus may not have referred to him as a rich man. He may not have referred to people in general as just the rich people. But those who put their trust in riches. It's impossible. It's impossible to thread the needle if you put your trust in riches. See, this gets to the heart of it. Because you don't know what Jesus may call you to. You don't know what Jesus may ask of you this month, this next year. Before the next season of your life begins, you don't know what he may ask you, but you get ready now so that when he calls, you can go because you fully trust him. That's the significance of this story. But why then did Jesus talk so much about money? It's because he knows how easy it would be for us to trust in it. He knows. That's why so many of the parables come back to money and possessions, stewardship. That's why, that's why he spoke more about money and possessions than he did heaven and hell combined. Why? Because he knew how easy it would be for you and for me, for any of us who think we're ready. But we ain't really ready. Until that mammon gets broken off of our lives, our resources, we're never really ready. Can I tell you, that's why giving matters. In fact, to be more specific, giving consistently matters. Yes, it fuels ministry through the church. 
But you know what it does? It teaches you not to trust in your money. When you give consistently, it reminds you that God is your source. God is your source. God is your source. It ain't about me collecting. It ain't about me saving. It ain't about me scrimping. Those things can be good and they all have their place. But what is foundational to my life is not that I'll ever find peace in my money. Not that I'll ever find protection in my money. I have found peace. I have found protection. I have found fulfillment and sustainment in my God. That's why I give first. That's why tithing matters. The Old Testament, it says the purpose of tithing is to teach you to always put God first in your life. Returning to God the first 10% of all of our increase literally breaks mammon. It's in his word. And it unlocks blessing on our lives. That blessing may be financial. It may not be. Can I tell you what the true blessing is? Is it does break mammon. So now, you're really ready. It's the reason giving in, in times like our here for good, our vision offering coming up here on November the 19th. It's the reason giving in moments like this matter. It matters because it, it, it shows God. It shows us that I don't find my source and my protection in the things that I can count. I find it in him and him alone because that's all money is. It's a test, a test of stewardship and trust. I mean, it's what Jesus brought to this young man in Mark 10 and in Matthew and in Luke. The man brought his accolades and Jesus said, all right, let's see. Go sell everything you have and come follow me. It was a test. A test that sadly but truthfully this young man failed. Today, to help you figure out maybe where you are, maybe to personally figure out um, the kind of attachment that money has on your life. Because the truth is, for most of us, money is our there. We'll trust God with anything and everything except our finances. In fact, it's been said that the last part of us that ever really gets saved is our wallet. And I think that's true because it's the thing that we can hold on to and keep our trust in while visually following God. So may I ask you three questions as a test? Please don't put your answers in the chat. Please process these personally. This is a really a time of response as we prepare even for the second installment of this series. But I have three questions for you. These are all yes or no questions. You can answer personally, because you know the answers to them. Here's the first question. Have you given anything to God financially in the last month? Yes or no? It's not about how much. Have you given anything to God financially in the last month? Yes or no? Number two, do you have a consistent pattern of giving financially to God over the last six months. Over the last six months, have you made it a habit to say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give uh, on the 15th of every month, or, or I'm, I'm going to give every week, or I, I set up reoccurring giving to be every other Tuesday. Oh, like, wh Have you 
had a pattern of giving consistently over the last six months, yes or no? I know for me and my family, we put a check in the yellow boxes first Sunday of every month. It's our pattern. It's our habits. Number three, do you have a consistent pattern of giving financially to God over the last six months that represents at least 10% or the tithe of your income? See, the tithe, yeah. Because the purpose of tithing is to teach you to always put God first in your life. The tithe is God's standard. Yes or no? Three questions. Now let me help you process what this means. If all of these were yes, then here's what's true. Money will not stop you from following Jesus. It's just true. It's just true. Money will not stop you from following Jesus. Whatever he asks of you, there, 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 may, be other, there may be other hesitations. Money won't be it. If any of these were no, money will stop you from following Jesus. You say, Will, that's so absolute. I promise you. I promise you. Because Jesus will call to you just like he called to this young man. And you'll uh, turn and walk away sad because of what was asked. test I gave you was also your next step. You say, what? If you don't give right now, maybe you're watching online, maybe you come in person, some whatever, you're connected to the chair, and you don't give, your next step is, number one, give something this month. Don't let the next 30 days go without giving to God through his church, without beginning to break mammon off your life. Choose to give here in a couple of weeks through our Here for Good offering. Choose to make it a priority. Maybe give today online. Give, like, give and so choose to do that. If you have given, but it's not consistent, you give when you think about it, you give when it's convenient for you. Friend, may I encourage you to take the next step, and number two is your step, and uh, become consistent. Maybe you would even go online and begin to set up reoccurring giving and say, hey, I'm going to give this amount on this week, on this day, on this month, and it's going to become consistent for me. Your next step, if you are inconsistent, is to become consistent. If you're consistent in your giving right now, but you know it's not the tithe, you say, oh gosh, it just seems like so, I, 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 I know. Your next step is number three begin to trust God with the first 10% of all that comes in and watch him do in your life, through your life, for your life, what only he can do. This is the season for this to happen. This is not you pray about it and work on it. To, no, 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 no. This is the season. This is the time. This is how you thread the needle. See, next installment in this series, I am going to change the way you see this story forever. Because some of us think that the call of Jesus in this story is impossible to do, and that's not what Jesus said at all. But I want to help you break mammon off your life. I want to help you 
be able to follow Jesus fully when he calls you. And the way to do that is to give consistently. Because giving consistently enables trusting completely. Giving consistently enables trusting completely. Learning to give consistently, weekly, monthly, by having a consistent, it enables, it develops on the inside. I am not my source. God is my source. He is my provider. He sustains me. He's the one. Because friend, what I want for you is not something from you at all. What I want for you is for you to be ready, willing, able, and eager to follow Jesus where he tells you to next. Because he may tell you to help somebody and you don't know how you're going to help them. And some of you are going to say no to helping someone simply because mammon sits on your life. Some of you, he's going to call you to serve. Some of you, he's going to call you to, I have no idea what God might do. In fact, I wrote this in your notes as my close for you today. I don't know what God is calling you to do. And I don't know what God will call you to. But I do know that if you don't trust God with your money now, there will be a day when your unwillingness to trust him with your money will make you sad. Because he will call you somewhere. And you will go nowhere because you didn't trust him. Just like the young man, you'll turn away from his call, turn away from his challenge, sad. Because you told yourself, I'll start giving someday. You told yourself, I don't really think about money that way. I ain't got that much. <laughs> but then Jesus said, follow me. And he brought that into the light. And that came to the light, you realized you weren't really ready. And so you end up going nowhere when he's called you there. Can I pray for you today as we close? Heavenly Father, I love you. Thank you for your word. Father, I know it's a corrective word for some of us. I know it's a challenging word for some of us. I know for some of us it's an encouraging word that our sacrifice, our giving, our consistency is what you have called us to do. And Father, I, I thank you for this being that reminder too. And Father, I just pray that you would help all of us individually to look inwardly. That there would be nothing that holds us back from trusting you completely. We would not allow our affection or our attention to our possessions to ever have us because we give all of ourselves to you. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for your word today. I pray it would be a word that sets deep in our heart that we cannot shake because it's your calling to us and for us. We pray all this in your name. And everybody said,